I consider myself a pretty easy person to work with, but I do have one um, trait uh, that probably drives, well, I know it drives our office manager, Olivia, especially crazy. Uh, I am an officer in the grammar police. Um, in fact, I think she's kind of given me the uh, nickname, the apostrophe king, uh, for all the apostrophes that we have in our prayer requests as we review those. Um, but, but, you know, there's, there's worse things than being a, an officer in the force uh, in that regard. And so I brought with me some examples this morning of actual church bulletins that probably could have benefited uh, from services like mine uh, to avoid some embarrassing typos or misprints. Uh, the first is this, um, don't let worry kill you off, let the church help. You know, that's what, what we're here for. Uh, this one, please place your donation in the envelope along with the deceased person you want remembered. That just sounds really messy. Uh, this one, Irving Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church, so ends a friendship that began in their school days. It's just <laughs> all downhill from there. These last two are my favorite. Uh, ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. <laughs> and this one is my, my actual very, very favorite. Ladies' Bible study will be held Thursday morning at 10 a.m. All ladies are invited to the lunch in the fellowship hall after the BS is done. You know, at least... <laughs> At least there's something to look forward to at the end of it. These last few weeks, we have been looking at the authority that Jesus holds uh, as our king. Uh, we saw through his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount the, the authority that he holds as a teacher, that he uh, interprets and teaches the word like none others of his contemporaries. Last week in Matthew chapter 8, we saw Jesus go through these kind of situations and restoring people and healing them, showing his authority over disaster and even demonic forces. This morning, we look and see Jesus' authority in a different way, uh, not authority that he takes upon himself in particular this morning, but one that he delegates to his disciples as he is sending them out as his kind of kingdom ambassadors, his representatives to do the work that he has done on a wider scale. But just as Jesus is giving his marching orders throughout chapter 10 this morning, if we didn't know better, we would think that there were maybe a few typos, a misprint that Matthew surely didn't intend in recording Jesus' words in his story. We see such one in chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This sounds like such a violent thing for Jesus to say. I mean, the only people that preach peace more than Jesus are like hippies. You know, he's kind of like the peace guy. In Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. His birth, birth was accompanied by, by the angels heralding him as, as the Prince of Peace, bringing peace on earth and goodwill toward men. At Jesus' arrest, Peter, trying to be valiant and standing up for his Lord, slices off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. And in that, Jesus, after healing this man, says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So what's going on here? I mean, who is this sword-wheeling samurai Jesus? But what we see here is that Jesus, his emphasis is not a call to arms, but rather truly a call to surrender to lay down the things which matter the most. Luke, writing to a different audience, recording it in a slightly different way, Jesus says, Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, division. Jesus is saying that if you think I came so that we can all kind of gather around the campfire and sing kumbaya together, then you've kind of missed the point. Another one, another typo that we could see this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. 
Jesus says, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He might not have a whole lot of work to do in that area. It kind of takes care of itself. Uh, But a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Again, Luke and Luke 14, 26, uh, the sentiment we see is a little bit different, but even more forceful. Jesus says there, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, it's important to reflect and remember when Jesus says hate, the way we understand hate in our culture is different from how they would have understood it. For them, speaking of hate isn't emotional disdain or or repugnance for a person. No, rather, Jesus is speaking in a time where following him might have meant being cut off from your family, cut off from your very community. In the Middle East, their mindset, the family and and religion and politics, they're all inseparable. And so consequently, betrayal in one area could lead to a schism in all others. So there's some evidence that Jewish people, when they left the faith, a funeral was held for them, as if to say they were dead to the rest of the family. And so what Jesus is telling us this morning is that being his kingdom ambassadors, being his representatives, is not for the faint of heart. As he sends us out to be his kingdom workers, this task that he gives us is not an easy one, and one that will require allegiance to him above all else. And so this morning, though this is a challenging teaching, I hope to encourage you and I hope that you hear Jesus' words coming from a heart of encouragement. That yes, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart or the half-hearted, but the truth that he offers are really and truly words of hope and grace and life. And so as Jesus offers us this call to discipleship, to, to following him, as he tells us what we will endure for his sake as his ambassadors and followers and representatives, I want to offer us kind of three encouragements for today. Before we do that, I want to get kind of a running start with the context of this situation. We know up to this point, seeing Jesus and what he's done for the kingdom throughout Matthew so far, we see that Jesus has been traveling and preaching and healing, that he's been proclaiming the kingdom message that God's rule and reign has come to the earth in, in, in him, in Jesus. And he ends chapter 9 with words of challenge. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. In other words, he's saying, there's work to be done, and I'm sending you to do it. And so Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to minister as he has ministered. And I can only imagine the kind of excitement they must have at first felt with this kind of call. That they're going to, out, to go out and they're going to preach the kingdom and perform miracles and, and heal the sick and raise the dead and, and cast out demons, all the things that Jesus has delegated his authority for them to be able to do. But then Jesus says something that is kind of a hit-the-brakes statement. Verse 16, he says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's not a hard image to comprehend. Sheep, wolves, I think we know who's coming out on the winning end of that fight. But when you are a sheep under the watchful eye of a good shepherd, then that story has a different ending. I think it all depends on who gives you the authority as you go. I remember when I was in the second grade, uh, my teacher left her purse in the van and needed something from it. And so she gave us 
uh, gave her car keys to, to someone to go get the, the purse for her. And when, I, when she handed me those car keys, it was like I had pulled the Excalibur out of the stone. You know, like I had all the authority in my hands. And no matter where I went, and nobody could tell me to go back to my classroom, I was on a mission to retrieve something for my teacher. And I think in much the same way, when we are sent out by Jesus, we go with his authority. And that makes all the difference. And so Jesus tells us this morning, things will not be easy for you when you are living for me and following me and carrying out the mission I have given you. But those, even those hardships will not have victory over me. And if they don't have victory over me, Jesus says, they will not have victory over you as you go with my kingly authority. And so we look at three encouragements that Jesus gives us in this to pursue this mission uh, with his authority. The first is the encouragement to stand firm. Verse 17, he says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see, Jesus encourages us to stand firm in the face of the increasing pressure we have to throw in the towel. He describes this kind of persecution where Christians would face government officials, be beaten in their local worship centers and betrayed even by their own family. And I know as Americans who have enjoyed a cultural Christianity, at least a, a friendly partnership with our culture for two centuries, we probably think that these things will never happen to us. But for the community to whom Matthew is writing, this was their reality. Throughout the book of Acts, we see Peter and John beaten for their testimony. We see John put to death by King Herod with the sword. We see Stephen stoned to death by an angry mob. And by the time Matthew is writing, later in the first century, this kind of persecution is rampant among his readers. In fact, among the 12 apostles, 11 of them were killed for their testimony. Examples, we see Paul was beheaded. Peter and Andrew were crucified. Thomas was run through with spears. Matthew was stabbed to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was clubbed to death. Messiah was burned alive. John was exiled to a prison island. But what I find most remarkable is in the midst of that, none of them recanted their testimony about who Jesus was, about the resurrection. They all stood firm. Not one of them, even in the face of death, ever said, well, you know, wait, 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 stop. We made the whole thing up. They stood firm. And I don't want to be uh, doom and gloom, and I don't pretend to predict the future, but I can foresee a time that is coming within our lifetime where we might face persecution in our own faith as well. Some of that might just be in the form of social seduction, that it's easier to look like the culture around us and adopt their values than to fight against it. Or there might come a day when the message of Christ is simply intolerable and those who stand for it will face legal backlash or imprisonment or even physical persecution for the truth. The gospel message by its nature is offensive. To say that there is one right way, one king, there is one Lord is as offensive as it is today as it was in the time in which Jesus first spoke these words. But even in that, there is hope. Because historically, when persecution has broken out against the church, the church 
has thrived. It was true in ancient Rome where Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's true in China where 63 million people have become Christians and it's the fastest growing religion in the last 50 years, even under communist oppression. And it's still true today. A few years ago, uh, when ISIS was at the height of their power, there was one day where they martyred 21 men for their faith. They beheaded them one by one for their faith in Jesus Christ. But what I found most remarkable is one of these martyrs, Matthew Arriaga, was not a Christian when he was captured. And so when asked by his executioners if he rejected Jesus Christ, he could have easily said yes and moved on with his life. But he was so moved by the faith that he witnessed from these others who had gone before him that he said, their God is my God. He saw the faith of these Christians even in the face of death. He saw their conviction and decided to die with them. Jesus says the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. But of course, being saved doesn't mean being spared any and all hardship. And so in encouraging us to stand firm, he also encourages us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Verse 23, he says, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going throughout the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You've got to love when Jesus says stuff like this. He says, you know, people are going to hate you and they're going to turn on you like they've turned on me. You'll, you'll be persecuted and you could be killed, but don't be afraid. You know, to be human is to know that fear is a very real thing. We acknowledge that fear is a natural response to threatening situations. Just this week, uh, driving here on Thursday on my way to work, the truck in front of me kicked up a rock, and it hit like square in front of my face. It didn't crack my windshield, but it felt like a bullet was coming at me. And of course, my heart spikes, my, my, my body kicks into this fearful response of being in a situ- situation like that. But the fear that Jesus is speaking to is not those kind of moments where it's an instinct that pops up, but it's this sense of continual dread. This anxiety, this, this worry over the hardships of what the future may hold. When my boys uh, were younger, they were really into uh, veggie tales. If you grew up like me, a child of the 90s, you know those cartoons of, of little vegetables teaching us Bible stories. Uh, and there's one particular song that Chandler especially latched onto, that God is bigger than the boogeyman. And that would give him great comfort. You know, there's monsters under the bed type of situation. You're just being afraid of the dark. But what we've come to find is more life is that the boogeyman changes as we get older. Because fear isn't always the cold chill running down your spine. It manifests itself in our anxieties and the things that we worry about. Safety, security, fear of pain and death and loss. And the world is incredibly adept at capitalizing on this fear. I mean, it's how news corporations make their money that we need to be afraid of pandemics or what the political party that we don't agree with might do if they ever get power or, or, or the environment or the next public tragedy. If they can keep us afraid, then they can keep us hooked. And into all of this, the Bible says loudly and boldly, do not be afraid, fear not. 
In fact, do not be afraid. It's the most repeated commandment in the Bible. The thing that God commands us to do over and over more than anything else in the entirety of Scripture is do not be afraid. And in this case, it's Jesus' own example that inspires us to be unafraid. He says, as your teacher, if they have treated me this way, they're going to teach you as my students the same way. As your master, they will treat you as they have treated me as my servants. If they have called me a chief of demons, then they will ascribe to you false motives as well. And so I've said before, but I think it bears repeating, that Jesus will never ask you to do what he was not first willing to do. And Jesus will never ask you to go where he was first not willing to go. You see, Jesus doesn't expect us to suffer in ways that he didn't suffer. He doesn't expect us to endure hardships in ways that he did not endure hardships. Jesus doesn't even expect us to die a death that he did not die. In fact, he says because of him, we don't even need to fear death. For the believer, death has no hold on us. And I know you might be thinking, well, that, that sounds good in theory, but it's a totally different story when you're on death's bed or your loved one is. But I look to the example of those who have gone before us. I think of a man named Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was a church father, one who was taught by John. And as he was approaching his own martyrdom in the Roman Colosseum, he knew what he was getting into. He knew that going into that Colosseum, he would not be coming out alive, but he had no fear. He says, now I begin to be a disciple of Christ. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only that I may win Jesus Christ. You see, when we truly understand that through Christ's resurrection, death no longer has a hold on us, then even the threat of death ultimately has no fear for us. The very worst thing that the world can throw at us is the very thing that ushers us through victory into the presence of Jesus. The reason that we can stand firm and do so without fear is a direct result of Jesus' last encouragement in this call to discipleship. Lastly, he says, you are loved. Now, I know that encouragements like stand firm and do not be afraid sound like bleak challenges more than they do uplifting encouragements. But the encouragement of those two is rooted in this third one. The reason that we can stand firm, the reason that we don't need to be afraid is because we are loved. Jesus says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are of more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Jesus has been painfully honest with us through this chapter. Over and over again, he says these things will come upon us because of him. Following Jesus will provoke opposition and even a violent response from those who oppose him. And so what we must understand is that if we are to serve as Jesus served, then we will likely suffer as Jesus suffered. But in the midst of this challenge, Jesus reminds us that through all of this, we are his. He says if God cares for sparrows, these dirt-cheap, unimportant birds, then how much more does he care for you, one of the crown jewels of his creation? If Jesus were to say this today, I think it would sound something like, are not pet store goldfish sold for a dime? And if God created and cares for them, how could he possibly not care about what happens to you? 
You see, the truth is, I don't know why you're here this morning. Some of you might be here in, in faithful response to this call on your life. But maybe others are here because of a sense of obligation. Maybe you were dragged here by your parents or by a friend. Maybe you're here this morning out of a sense of guilt, that, that God is in heaven with his Sunday school clipboard, his attendance chart, and if you don't get enough gold stars, then he's going to smite you down. Some of you might be here because you're giving this one last shot. You feel chewed up and spit out, and you're saying, God, I'm going to give this one more shot, one more chance to find some shred of hope to cling to. I don't know why you're here this morning, but I do know that the word that God wants to speak into your heart every minute of every day is that you are loved. He has not forgotten about you. He has never turned his back on you. He knows everything about you, and still he loves you. Jesus says he knows the very number of hairs on your head. Now, I know, granted, for some of you, that's not as high of a counting threshold as it is for others, but the point is the same, that God still knows you intimately. He knows your heart, he knows your thoughts, he knows your shortcomings, your sin, and your failure, failures, and still he says, this one is mine. But what he asks of us is that we love him in return. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. It sounds harsh, but what Jesus is telling us is that the stakes are too high to simply play church. And this is a decision that will turn family members against each other. Will bring us into conflict with systems of the world and ultimately possibly lead us to lay down our lives. And so Jesus tells us, if you're with me, be with me. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my ambassador, the one I send out for this kingdom mission, then you have to be mine. I have to be your king. I'll close with this this morning. In 1904, William Borden, uh, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from Chicago High School, and already just upon graduating was a millionaire because of his family's fortune. And so as a graduation present, his family gave him a trip around the world. What was intended, though, as a sightseeing trip turned into something else as he traveled through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, and he began to turn his heart into one that has a burden for the world's hurting people. And so riding home, he said, I'm going to give up my life to prepare for the mission field. And when he made that decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words. He wrote, no reservations. And so life for guest on, he turned down high-paying jobs after graduating from Yale University, and he wrote two more words in his Bible, no retreats. Completing his studies at Princeton Seminary, Borden sailed for China to work with Muslims. But yet, first he stopped at Egypt for some preparation. While he was there, he contracted bacterial meningitis, cerebral meningitis, and died within a month. You look at his story and think, what a waste. And he'd given his life to, to go into the mission field and never even got to get there. And yet in his Bible, underneath those other words, no reserves and no retreats, he also had written the words, no regrets, no reservations, no retreats, no regrets. This is the life that Jesus calls us to. Regardless of what we face on his behalf, he is calling us to a life where we continue to push forward in our pursuit of him 
and push forward in the mission that he has given us as his king. To see his kingdom grow and spread and flourish throughout our community and throughout our world so that he might be recognized as a good and benevolent and loving king who rules over all and reigns so that we might have a relationship with him. No reservations, no retreats, no regrets. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we read through Matthew 10 and we see that it is a challenging mission that Jesus gives us. As these marching orders are not for the faint of heart, but you call us to a true and lasting allegiance to you. As we come and, and we worship, we do so to prepare to be sent out. That we come not to just get a check on the attendance chart, not to just fulfill some kind of religious obligation, but to do so learning more about you and your, your desire for us so that we can bring that out into a world who needs to know who you are. So Jesus, as we are sent, I pray that you would encourage us and continue to encourage us through your spirit to stand firm, to stand firm in the face of those who would will to fight against us as we seek to save them through you. Jesus, I pray that you would encourage us to not be afraid, to not let the anxieties and the worries that we have in our lives consume us, but to push through them with a lasting vision of you, our King. And finally, we would just ask that we'd be, we would remember to know that we are loved. That you, though you speak to us words of challenge, you do so with the, with the knowledge that you love us and you have your hand upon us. That even the worst this world has to throw on us is not outside of your knowledge or your control. And so, God, we pray that we would remember your love for us as we seek to do your work, as we pursue this mission that you've given us with no reservations, no retreats, no regrets. Thank you, Jesus, for being our good and loving King. We pray this in your name. Amen.